The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I am your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. I'm really so happy to have you with me. Please be in touch with questions, ideas, or just to let me know how the show affects you. My website, social media, and email address are all on the Good Grief host page at Voice America, along with links to every one of the Good Grief shows that have, that have already happened. I've also just added a link to an index of shows so you can easily find interviews on specific topics. Today I'm welcoming Zoe Fitzgerald Carter. Zoe is the author of the memoir Imperfect Endings, A Daughter's Story of Loss, Love, Loss, and Letting Go, an account of her mother's decision to end her own life after a long battle with Parkinson's disease. Imperfect Endings, published by Simon & Schuster, was excerpted in O Magazine, chosen as a finalist for the National MS Society's Books for a Better Life Awards in the Inspirational Memoir category, and was a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers pick. People Magazine says Imperfect Endings, quote, coaxes beauty from the bleak, unquote. And Paula Spann of the New York Times wrote, I could quote from this book all day. Zoe was born in Paris, France, and grew up in Washington, D.C. A lifelong writer and graduate of Columbia Journalism School, Zoe has written for numerous publications, including the New York Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, Salon, and Vogue. She's a proud member of the San Francisco Writers Grotto, where she teaches classes in memoir and is currently at work on a book about race. She also plays guitar and sings in an indie string band called do wrong right. Welcome to Good Grief, Zoe. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I love your bio because there, uh, you know, my bio also has these other things I do tucked in because <laughs> I don't just do one thing. So I enjoy, enjoyed especially the the last thing about your string band. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I think music is actually probably the most fun the f- most fun thing I do in my life. I have to say. Yeah, I I I have a few competitions for most fun, but music is up there for sure. <laughs> um, I I wanted to just start by saying that your book cut very deep for me. Uh, my mother died in September, as I may I, I may have let you know, and she although she didn't um, do anything proactive to hasten her death exactly, she did stop treatment. Um, against advice, and mm. from that point on, kind of steadfastly 
move towards her own death. A lot of directionality for her, very, um, very determined kind of death. Mm-hmm. And so uh, your book just took me right back there. Yeah, I think my mother was sort of remarkable in that she started planning her death before she was actively dying. So she was, she joined the Hemlock Society and she began investigating different forms of uh, ending her life um, a good year or, or more before she actually went ahead and did it and involved my sisters, uh, my two older sisters and I, in that conversation uh, well in advance. And I, and I think she was unusual in that. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, I, I have met people who kind of always had that idea about the end of their mm-hmm. life. I'm just going to skip mm-hmm. that part. But most, uh, many people change their mind when they're actually at that point. And, and it sounds like that's the, the moment at which your mother really started investigating how to go about that, huh? Yeah, I think sometimes it's just a relief for people to have a, an end plan and so they cannot feel quite so fearful about how it's going to play out in the end. And I think in the states where there is uh, legalized assisted suicide, um, that, that what organizations like Compassion and Choices often find is that once people sign up to um, have a doctor come and, and help them not administer the dose of, of, uh, of medication, but, but just to provide it to them, just to be clear with that. Um, but that once that that's in place, people oftentimes can relax and let nature take its course. Um, and I think for my mother, that was, that was not an option. Assisted suicide was not legal in Washington, D.C., which is where she lived. So uh, I've heard that, of course, many times, too, that once, once you have the button, you may not need to press it, is how I've heard it. Right, um, right. Uh, but do you think the fact that, um, do you think it might have made her more determined, the fact, fact that that wasn't available and that she had to really think it, think it through in another way? Yes. I really do. I'm really glad you asked me that question because I really did come to believe that if um, assisted suicide had been legal where we live, that she would have lived longer, that she was so afraid of missing this window of time where she could organize her own death. And, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, so I think that I actually think if she had been able to call on a, a trusted doctor at a time, uh, when she felt that, that her life was no longer, um, tenable for her, um, I think she would have gone further, and I think she would have spent her last months of her life perhaps thinking about other things and not having to be so focused on how she was going to um, make this thing happen, and that, you know, also how she was going to involve my sisters and I and, and not put us at risk legally, because we were very concerned about uh, what might happen if there was some investigation into the cause of her death and, you know, we were, we were young, you know, with young children and, and, and none of us obviously wanted to face a jail sentence. And, um, uh, so we, we, we were very, it was a big, it was a big source of anxiety, um, layered onto all of the other very intense forces that we were contending with, including most primarily the, the impending loss of our mother. Well, that's part of what I was thinking about as I was reading because, um, you know, going through the loss of my mother, 
I was I was trying to imagine adding the layer of fear that was there, not of exactly. death, uh, but of but of um, kind of having having being at risk somehow. And that just seemed so, uh, well, I think you captured that, that experience so well in the book. And I just had, uh, could only imagine how much pain that added to the process. It did. There was, there was an, an enormous amount of um, fear and anxiety. Uh, and, um, and it's hard to know how theoretical it is because, um, you know, it does happen. There was a case in California. I know you're out here too, Cheryl, um, not so long ago when, when, a young, when a woman did go to jail uh, for helping her mother um, end her life, even though her mother's intentions were very, very clear. Um, and I won't go into the circumstances of that case, but those things really um, do happen. And, and it, was, it was a reality, and it was a, and it was a big distraction to have to uh, worry about that. And uh, I, do, I do have to say that by the time you were talking about her actual death, uh, the last few days of her life, mm-hmm. I felt a really dramatic shift towards just what that experience is like. So uh, does that reflect that at that point that, what, that was sort of over, that concern that you'd had, you and your sisters? Yes. Well, I, I, I sort of feel like I'm giving away the end of my book, which is sort of <laughs> ironic because obviously we all know how it ends. My, my mother. Uh, but not exactly how. No, not exactly how. And so I, I but, you know, I, I guess I want to go ahead and go into it a little bit because I do feel that the decision my mother made was really driven by this issue that we're talking about, which is the legalities of the situation. And so she ended up deciding to stop eating and drinking and not take an overdose, a drug overdose, in order to not open up that possibility of some kind of investigation. And so she did stop eating and drinking, and and then at some point it wasn't going very quickly, and she did take an overdose of morphine one night and it was a very scary night, a very dramatic night. Um, and, she, but she survived that, that overdose. Um, and you know, the body is tenacious and it, it you know, it was an amazing thing to see how she kept going. Um, even though her will was so strong. Um, one thing about that period of time when she was not eating and drinking is that we really saw that every day she was committing to this act, that it was not just kind of the dark soul of the night when somebody takes an overdose of drugs and, and dies. I mean, this was a woman who was determined day after day and was, was choosing not to eat and drink and wasn't in such bad spirits, but it did start to wear her down. And she, she did decide to feed things along and take this morphine. And lo and behold, that did not end her life either. Um, and then that last period of time, it did certainly... Things, it, it sped things up, but it, 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 it can she live for three more days. And I think during that period of time, it very much mimicked a natural death in that we were with her. She was largely unconscious. We were singing to her and, and reading and, and lying in bed with her. And it was very much like the experience I'd had seven years earlier when my father died and we were all kind of around his, his bedside as things unfolded naturally. And so, yes, it, it, it became... Um, a very peaceful, very, very beautiful uh, final few days. And my sister and I both had young children there, two daughters each. And we would all come around the bedside every night and, and 
form a circle and hold her hand and squeeze her hand and sort of send a pulse of energy around. And it was really a lovely, um, beautiful, peaceful ending. And she, she really got what she wanted. She had her family around her and she died on her own terms. I, I actually really love that part of the book. And when I got to the point, you know, your kids were playing, everything's happening in the room, which actually reminded mm. me more of my wife's death than my mother's. Mm. Uh, my mother apparently set it up to die alone, <laughs> the best we can figure. But sure um, that's a story in itself. Yes, it is. But um, when your mother kind of came out of it for a minute and said, oh, the passing parade, I, I just thought that was so lovely. <laughs> so I thank it you for, for sharing that memory. Um, I'd like to have you share the part of the book about after she died, because um, as someone who's so interested in grief and how people grieve and what that process is about and what helps it, what doesn't, uh, that that was very moving to me in terms of how the way we handle death can sometimes set us uh, on a course of grief that's helpful. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and I think I think the the rituals that we came up with in my family were very spontaneous, but 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 very healing. And um, and just to say before I read, I also um, do feel that that the time you spend with somebody at the end of their life, when everything becomes very simple in a way, um, you, it becomes very elemental. You just love them in a very simple way. Um, and, and, and all the sort of grievances and irritations and the history you have of them really falls away. And Absolutely. I think that time that you spend with someone when they're dying is so healing. I do think that a lot of the grieving happens when the person is still alive, if you have the good fortune, which I did with both my parents, to spend that kind of time with them in their room, um, just communicating in a very deep, often unspoken way with them. So the, the, the part I'm going to read happens right after her death. And I just want to say, to set it up, that Rosa is my mother's beloved Chilean caregiver who's been there really for the duration and my um, and Hannah is my middle sister, um, and she was there with me as well throughout this whole experience. Um, so, Rosa lights a candle, and Hannah turns on the CD with the Tibetan monks playing their singing bowls. The three of us stand and look down at my mother. I feel peaceful and almost happy, as if we've completed some monumental task. Then Rosa says we should dress my mother's body before she gets stiff and I choose the dark blue blouse with white anchors that used to be mine and a pair of navy blue pants. Hannah goes to call the hospice while Rosa and I slip the nightgown over my mother's head and with surprising ease pull on the blouse and pants. Standing back to look at her, we realize she needs something on her feet and we add a pair of wool socks. When she is dressed, Rosa wraps the soft black scarf around her chin and over the top of her head to keep her jaw from falling open. It's what they used to do in Chile, she explains, when people were laid out at home and rather than by undertakers who wire the jaw closed. It makes my mother look bundled up as if for the cold, but also gives her the austere romantic look of an Italian saint. Her face is pale and smooth now, as if death had erased all the laughter and worry lines. She looks beautiful. It would have pleased her. And then I'm just going to skip ahead a few pages to... 
later in that morning when all of the children come into the room and, um, and all of the names other than Hannah and uh, Rosa's are referred to either my children or my sister's children. At my sister Hannah's suggestion, we form a final circle. My mother's hands lie at her side, so I simply rest one of my hands on her shoulder while on the other side of her up on the bed, Evie leans comfortably against her hip. There have been many questions about the scarf. Why is it wrapped around her head? Is she cold? Does she still have hair underneath? It's a custom, I explained, something Rosa taught us. When the circle ends, the children all seem remarkably cheerful and chatty, bickering good-naturedly over the inexpensive stone necklaces that hang on a stand on my mother's bookshelf, each wanting to pick one out to give to her. Fiona and Clara both write her notes, which they fold into tiny squares and hide under her arm. Evie picks an orange from the ornamental orange bush in the dining room and drops it casually off at the end of the bed. Pretty soon, the whole thing has taken on the madcap feel of a treasure hunt. None of the children seem the least bit uncomfortable or afraid of my mother's dead body as they rush around finding small items, including rocks and flowers from the garden, to bring in and deposit. Rosa puts a small rosary in my mother's hand and crosses herself, and Hannah tucks a favorite silk scarf into her pocket. I place a copy of her novel on her chest and a pair of my father's wooden drumsticks at her side. Crossing the front hall, I enter the big room and let my eyes travel up the huge floor-to-ceiling bookshelf that covers the wall in front of me. I'm still searching for something to give her, something just from from me. Then I see it sticking up out of an old marmalade jar among an assortment of abandoned pens and paintbrushes, an enormous brown and white feather with a curling black tip. Reaching up, I grab the jar and pull the feather out, gently run my fingers down its soft sides, releasing a small whirlwind of dust particles into the clear, bright air. I place the translucent white quill between my thumb and index finger, feel its dry, spiny strength, and then holding it tightly, walk back to my mother's room and place the feather carefully under her hand. That was a very long passage, Cheryl. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, it's, it, it's, it's, you know, no, what I, what so I long, thought, yeah. what I thought about that part of the book is that it's really the way that it feels to be in a room like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really, you mm-hmm. really captured it. Let's let's pick that up when we come back from the break. Listeners, sure. you can go to my social media to let me know what you think and to connect with me, uh, make a counseling appointment with me here in California, and to uh, reach out to me as a speaker or consultant. And you can find Zoe Carter at zoefitzgeraldcarter.com. Your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. Today I'm talking with Zoe Fitzgerald Carter about her mother's decision to end her own life after years of living with Parkinson's disease and the book and book chapter Zoe wrote about that that loss. Um, you know, for me, the moment right after death, what surprised me so much uh, the first time I was I was I attended to someone who was dying was that was how peaceful. And um, kind of right with the world, I felt. Yeah, uh, uh, you know that that there was just a, a very sacred kind of feeling in that room, and that was something I really did not, um, I couldn't have prepared for. I was so shocked by it. Now, no, of I course, it's not you, shocking I to did, me. But I'm sorry. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, that was the end. Of, go ahead. I, I disagree, and I was so enthusiastically wanting to agree with you that I cut you off. But okay. <laughs> I, I don't mind agreement. <laughs> yeah. And who would know? I mean, you you don't know going into it if you're going to break down in, into you know wild crying or you know pounding your chest. I mean, you just don't know. But I I found that that exact same experience to be true that that there's something so peaceful and so um intimate and 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 also um there's such resolution and i think you see that the person has achieved this 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 thing that they've been working towards so hard i mean i think the the body dying is actually such a process it's not easy it's it's a it's an incremental event and um, and I think there is such a sense of, of, of completion almost when, when somebody does take that last breath. And um, I, 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 I think it's hard, too, when you move out of that very intimate moment and you try and, and tell people that the person has died and there's usually a very dramatic response. And I can remember feeling sort of jarred by that, you know, like, no, 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 it's really okay. It's, it's, what, it's what meant to, you know, it's what was supposed to happen and and it and it happened in this very beautiful um complete way and that's i i think that's an important thing to convey to people that that death is is not just grief and loss and drama i mean there are these beautiful moments and moments of of laughter and um just real life it's all mixed in there together and there were great moments my mother had where we would laugh you know right up to the end over things um yeah. so I, I i wanted to it convey that in my book, that death is not just all 
depression and sadness and grief and loss. Well, and the the other thing that I I found important about reading that for myself is that um, I recall feeling, not with, of course, the people that were involved in there because they'd had that experience with me, but with other people, I felt like I was sort of in hiding because I was honestly pretty euphoric for a period of time, and it didn't feel at all like shock, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a Mm -hmm. sort of, you know negative state or something. It was very present. But just, I think if you uh, had that, that opportunity to prepare too, I mean, I, I, I think being with somebody in that dying process, just to, to, to um, bounce back to what I was saying before, I think it's such a gift because yes. you, you really do have this, this time to prepare. I, I think it's very hard when there's a sudden death and it's unexpected and, you know, somebody goes to surge, into surgery and doesn't make it or there's a car crash or, you know, I think those, those kinds of deaths are very difficult to metabolize and assimilate. And, and um, so as, as not to say that it's an easy thing, but I think when you lose somebody um, and you know that that's happening and you're kind of living in the shadow of that awareness for a period of time, uh, it's, a, it's a very different experience. It is, and yet uh, my father did die pretty suddenly, fell, cracked mm. his head, died, and there was that quality as well, but I don't know if there would have been if, I, if that was my first death, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because it was yeah. so stunning, um, but there was that feeling by the end, we had a few days, so of course that's different than suddenly someone coming to your door as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um so then, of course, there is still grief to be felt and, and experienced. And I wondered if we could, uh, I, the, the uh, chapter you wrote for the book, A Body of Grief, um, captures the physical nature of grief so well, I think. Um, you know, I just which, want to say, Cheryl, that um, actually uh, the, it's an essay um, that is called A Body of Grief, and that was my title for, for this essay. Oh, excuse uh, me, essay. I misunderstood that. No, it's okay. It's an anthology that actually I'm so excited about. It's coming out in October of this year, um, and it's called 30 Shades of Blue. And Amy Ferris, who's a wonderful writer, uh, is editing it, and she's solicited essays from a number of writers, and it's really on this theme of loss and grief um, and depression and, you know, all the things we imagine with that kind of blue. Um, sure. <laughs> just to be clear. And obviously it's a takeoff on Fifty Shades of Grey, but it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> um, yeah. As a contrast, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, what what uh, what I've thought was so important about it is I'm I'm always telling people uh, having to to uh, explain to people how physical the grief is that it's it, that it's a physical right. experience as much as anything else and I I just really thought you captured that remarkably well so I wonder if you could share some of that. Sure, sure. Yeah. No, I think that's so interesting. Yeah, I don't think I knew that until I got. Uh, caught up in, in it, in that exact um, misunderstanding about grief. And just to set this up a little bit, um, I think, you know, I had, I had spent so much time and energy talking to my mother about her death and going to various people um, 
and getting, you know, second all from the psychiatrist and, and meeting with the Hemlock Society person and just these endless conversations. And I was on the living on the West Coast. She was on the East Coast. I had these two young children. I was flying back and forth. It had all been very disruptive and exhausting, frankly. And um, so when she did finally die, I was just ready to reclaim my life. Like, let's just get going here. And I think, sure. you know, looking back, I didn't take very much time to grieve. And then my body sort of did that work for me. So I'm going to just jump in here. Um, I'm back in California and kind of throwing myself headlong into my life. For a week or so, I was a whirlwind of released energy, churning out words, flying down hills, staying up late, driving the carpool, having sex, throwing parties, and playing music. No more waiting for the phone to ring with my mother's pinched voice on the other end, proposing yet another day or another way to die. No more lying on the couch all morning because to commit to any one activity was to invite interruption, a call from a doctor or a caretaker, another conversation about death. Everything was back on track, I thought, strapping on my bike cleats and grabbing my helmet for yet another ride. And then the whole construct came to a skidding, tire-rolling, helmet-flying halt. But it wasn't my bike that crashed. It was my body. First, there was a freaky eyesight thing that made me think I was going blind, a vague, difficult-to-define disturbance in my vision that started a month or two after my mother's death. It danced like a vibrating cloud across my eyes, a thin, shimmering curtain between me and the world that made me feel permanently stoned or half asleep. Then came the ticks. They would start in my left eyebrow, move down my arm, and pop up, especially at night, in my calves. Then a random, searing pain radiating across the left side of my upper back like an evil, sprouting wing. And just to keep things lively, dizzy spells, stomach aches, night sweats, and insomnia. Having been exceptionally healthy my whole life, I felt like I had entered the twilight zone. My formerly peaceful nights were now dogged by wakefulness and primal fears. I feverishly wondered if my mother's death had infected me, if her sickness and despair had leached itself into my flesh while I slept beside her. I told myself I was an idiot, that none of my symptoms, with the exception of a possible brain tumor, were even serious. They were just annoying, transitory spasms. This, too, would pass. And then it goes on, I, I actually ended up getting atrial fibrillation, which probably your listeners know is an irregular heartbeat, and it and can be fairly uh, innocuous, but it's, it's very alarming. Um, mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, a, a um, case of poison oak that pretty much took over my entire body and left me sort of weeping, both physically, because, you know, you're sort of oozing all this awful stuff. Yes, I've had that. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Weeping on every level and feeling very out of control. And and I came across this fabulous doctor. And I I do have another section I'd like to read about that, but I can also uh, wait and and come back to that. Uh, Well, let's just linger a minute because, you know, that, uh, that sense of physical drama um, you know, one of, one of my friends after my mom died, uh, she lost her mom a few years ago. She said, you're going to go to bed. I can't tell you when, but it will happen. <laughs> I don't know if I've quite gone to bed, but I know exactly what she's talking about. You know, there's just sort of this. I had told me to do that or, or that that would happen. I think that would have been a good warning for me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and uh, I don't think anyone told me, me that about my wife, but I sort of expected it, you know. Especially when a um, when a very young person, she was forty two, oh, 
Uh, you know, uh, I, I expected uh, I would have dramatic uh, grief. And, and I sort sure. of did and didn't. But when I needed to lay down, I did because I had expected it. Maybe not quite so much with my mother, who was older, you know, 84. Um, I had been preparing myself. But there's no preparation for losing your mother, I guess. And I think you put your own needs on hold when you're a caretaker and you're so focused on the needs of the person who's dying. Absolutely. And I think you stop listening to what your body needs. And, and yet your body is registering not only that it's being ignored, but that, that there is a trauma there, you know, and if there isn't some way to express that or... And it's not easy. I don't think we, you know, I think we're a culture in a hurry and there's not a lot of places to grieve. I mean, there's a memorial and then, you know, if you're Jewish, there's a year later another uh, memorial, which I think is a lovely tradition. And I think some cultures have more traditions around grief. Um, I felt like there was very little uh, and not being religious. There wasn't a, um, you know, there was no, no, no. church to, to turn to or that kind of community or solace sure. or that sort of space to turn to. So I, it was, it just, it just felt like I, I, I kind of, I needed to just hurry back and forward and put it all on hold in a sense. Well, and, and there's also, uh, this is an assumption, but there's often, uh, you know, people waiting for you to get back to them. Uh, Absolutely. Your friends, your kids, your husband, your whoever it is. Um, oh, good, that's over. Now we can kind of go on. That is, that's really true. I think there's a big expectation that people will move through their grief quickly and, and, and that, you know, it's okay to talk about it for a while, but then it's not okay. And I think, you know, the other thing I really... Um, was so moved by when I uh, wrote the book, especially how many people wanted to tell me their stories about about death and dying, and and how much we carry these things around us with us, thinking that we can't share them because somehow they're I don't know distasteful or they're they're a they're a downer. You know, we, we can't bum people out at a party and tell them that our mother just died. You know, and so we we hide we we hide it away, and it ends up being very isolating. And then all of that uh, unexpressed emotion, I think, really takes on a life of its own. It certainly did with with me. Absolutely. Well, that's sort of, in a, in a sense, the the point of my show. <laughs> you know, to have right. a place where uh, these experiences, in all of their complexity, are aired, because it's not a one way experience. It's multi directional. I I believe the experience of grief and loss. So then you found a doctor who helped with the body part, <laughs> as I understand it. Can you, yes. can you read that section? Yes. And I think even more the emotional part, but it certainly came from, it started with the body. So, mm-hmm. so I, I finally go to this, this, this doctor who, who, who I'd, I'd heard about, and she's very unorthodox. She's this, you know, small woman in a Guatemalan shirt who comes out and she has, um, all kinds of crazy stuff up on the walls in her office. It's not like any doctor's office I've ever been to. And she invites me in and, and basically listened to me and asked me questions for a full hour, just mm-hmm. very uh, open, very interested. Uh, she was not holding my hand, um, but she was listening very carefully and taking me in. And um, so I'm going to cu- jump in here at the, at the end of, of our consultation. Um, 
Dr. H, which, which, well, let me, actually, I'm going to maybe back up just a, a tad here. Um, uh, wait, no, I'll just start. So she, so she, she's basically acknowledged that I'm grieving. Um, she says, uh, um, you need to grieve for your mother. Uh, write, meditate, walk, bike, keep biking. The arrhythmias, are, arrhythmias aren't going to kill you. Think of them as information. Your body's talking to you, letting you know it's stressed and you need to listen to it. You're going to be fine. You're young and healthy, and we just need to get you back into balance. She wrote out several pages of instructions, everything from cutting out wheat and dairy to taking the Chinese supplement called Freeing the Moon to deep breathing and meditation. And she referred me to a local homeopath and an acupuncturist, both of them women, both of them close colleagues of hers, and told me to come back in six weeks. Sitting outside in my car, I cried, and then I laughed. And then I stared at a neon-lit nail salon, trying to figure out what the hell had just happened. For the first time in weeks, I felt a deep sense of hope and relief. I was not dying or having a nervous breakdown. I was not crazy or stupid. I would follow the instructions Dr. H gave me, both that day and at many appointments to come, and I would eventually get better. I would also read books with titles like When the Body Says No and Why People Don't Heal, and realize that there is a whole science behind the physical expression of trauma, stress, and unexpressed grief. And then I would get angry all over again at the way most doctors see us as a single symptom, or at best, a compilation of symptoms, not as holistic organisms. But one thing I knew for sure that day, I had received far more than good medical advice. I had received the gift of being fully seen, not just for the malfunctioning parts of my body, but for the sad, neglected parts of my being the unacknowledged emotion that had been willfully tossing up symptoms like a tantruming child. For the first time in years, I felt mothered. I laughed with the obviousness of it, and then I cried again. My mother had stopped mothering me years before she died, and that was perhaps the greater grief, even greater than her death. The huge layered rock that I had been dragging around with me, cumbersome but manageable, until suddenly it wasn't. But thanks to Dr. H, I could begin to dismantle it, to chip away at the pieces, let them crumble and fall away. I wondered briefly if Dr. H would consider adopting me. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> oh, being adopted <laughs> sounds pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and, and the other did, thing that really resonated uh, with me in that is, is the incredible power of being heard. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that's, that's uh, maybe 99% of what therapy is, for instance. Yes. Just being heard and how, how much that can change your uh, state of being and your experience. And I think when grief and, uh, and, and, and emotional unrest takes a physical form, it can be very frightening. It's, it's very hard to understand, and I think we feel that our bodies are sort of turning on us. And it was yes. a very difficult time for me. And I think to have somebody who could contain all that, could take it all in, could sort of, could sort of um, put it in, in, a, in a very almost <clears throat> ordinary perspective and, and, and yet um, really acknowledge where it came from and, and, and all of the other, the deeper things that were going on with me. Um, again, in this sort of very matter-of-fact way, um, but it was so brilliant. And, and, you know, even the kind of come back in six weeks, I used to go, you know, she would say, go do this and then come back and tell me what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, most doctors are like, 
I'm going to write you a prescription and I hope I never see you again. Bye-bye. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really was a, an amazing um, experience for me. And uh, um, sadly, that doctor um, retired a few years later and I, I just mm-hmm. mourn. Another, another loss. <laughs> yeah. Time for our second break. Time is flying. Uh, out there, be in touch with me by going to my host page at Voice America and be in touch with Zoe Fitzgerald Carter at zoefitzgeraldcarter.com. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and today I've been talking with Zoe Fitzgerald Carter about her book and a chapter she wrote for uh, an anthology about her mom's decision to end her life and her own slow acceptance of that choice, as well as her grief after that loss. Um, I was thinking as I was listening to you read uh, you know, about, about being helped, about um, having someone really see and hear you and give you uh, a solid direction to, towards healing. Mm-hmm. Um, how uh, there's that sort of paradox with grief. Some of it seems so solitary and, and individual and alone. And yet there's another part that so depends on uh being heard well and and having people support you. And um, you certainly got that from her. And I wondered where else that was available to you going through that, that process, because it was actually, wasn't your mother sick for 20 years or so. So a very, very long caregiving um, lifetime. 
Yeah, and I do want to say because uh, Parkinson's is such a common disease, and and I, I you know my mother um, did very well with Parkinson's for many many years, and she lived a very full life, and she was very active, and and um, uh, she had a fairly slow developing form of the disease, and there are different forms of it, but I, I do sure. think you can live a long time with Parkinson's and do very, very well, and I think um, it really wasn't until uh, sort of the last couple of years that, that she just, she, she was just tired and very afraid of, of what was ahead, and she was a very stubborn and proud woman, and I think for her, where somebody else would be okay, what she was losing wasn't okay for her. And so I think mm-hmm. people, you know, are very different. So I just want to be clear about that. Sure, absolutely. Um, and yet yeah. it's, it's uh, for me anyway, my, my uh, mom had a similar um, kind of illness for a long time, not what mm-hmm. killed her, a different illness. For a long time, she didn't mm-hmm. need really help. You know, she was okay. And yet my consciousness had shifted when mm-hmm. she was diagnosed with that first illness. So that's more what I meant. Not that that whole time right. uh, she needed sure. your physical support, but just that it, it's a long um, state of consciousness for us as daughters, I guess. Yes, no, absolutely. And I, I, I think um, when you suddenly realize that you are are taking on some of the parenting and they're taking on some of the child roles and there's this real reversal. Um, and I was sort of taking care of my mother more and more over that period of time. And especially after my father died, um, it, it is a very, it's a very different role to be in. And I think I even touch on that in that in, when I, when I talk about ways I had stopped feeling mothered by my mother way before she died and mm-hmm. the kind of loss of, of that security, you know, that person who's sort of, uh, um, uh, enveloping you just psychically, emotionally, who's always there to kind of fall back on when things get rough. And then suddenly you actually become that person for your parent. Um, and it's, and it's, it's, it, 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 it's a, it's a real transition. I think it is a transition. And I think, you know, um, I, 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 I do think that for me, one of the things that was so interesting about my body falling apart and then going and having to sort of seek out these different people was I often found myself with older women who were, were, were literally putting, laying their hands on me, you know, either, um, you know, through acupuncture or whatever, you know, modality it was, you know, I'm just, I'm Berkeley, you know, this is (laughs) a very into alternative medicine. And so I probably um, swim in those waters a little more deeply than some of your listeners, but you know, there were different modalities where I oftentimes felt like somebody was, laying on laying on hands and it mm-hmm. was so comforting to me just sort of from the body inward um it it just was nourishing and felt like that um nurturing that i had lost really years before was in some way being given back to me but i i think it's really interesting cheryl i actually would be curious what you think in terms of uh i mean i have someone who's very close to me now is dealing with the loss of a of a brother and and it's so difficult to to be of the world and also be dealing with your grief and and find the people who really help you as opposed to the people who just sort of say those things that people say and don't really connect in that deeper way. Absolutely, I think uh, I I also do groups for for women with cancer, and we were talking about um, there are some women that are quite young and they have a lot rougher time finding anyone who 
kind of gets it. Uh, uh-huh. You know, as as we age, more and more people will have had a loss of their own, and some of those people that have had losses will have allowed it to affect them in a way that then makes them able to be there for you. Uh, yes. I don't know how old you were when your mom died, but I do think there is a generational sort of factor there of mm-hmm. being able to hear another person's pain and grief. Um, that's, a, that's a great point. I, I, I do think, because I was 40 when my mother died and 30, I don't know, 33 when my father died. So I was on the young end, and I do remember feeling that um, th- that it was hard for friends of mine, and often, you know, now many of them are going through what I went through, you know, so long ago at this point. I mean, my, my mother died in, in um, 2001, um, and so uh, I, I think, but I think that's a really good point that that as we age, you know, death becomes more of a factor, and and I think we all, more of us have experienced you know, even peers dying and certainly parents and, and older relatives, sometimes spouses or partners. Um, so I think there is more uh, awareness and, and more people are, can kind of speak that language in a sense. And you sure. Are isolated. With the yeah. caveat, of course, that some people who don't want to face the loss they've had will be less available. <laughs> I mean, I think that can sure. happen. Um, but... Uh, where in the part of the world where we live, I, I just find people, uh, you know, more and more maybe able and, and willing to um, explore their own experiences of loss. And, and that makes you so much more available to other people. Yeah, and I, I think it's great, you know, that there are, there are grief groups and I think, you know, the, a lot of the stigma around going to a therapist, certainly for a situational issue like this, you know, that uh, I, I think that's much more common and available. I also think for me, it was finding the places in my life just um, to, as, 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 as part of the, the, the kind of um, day-to-day almost, to bring my mother in to... Uh, to toast her at the dinner table or to take the time to go to um, the cemetery where she's buried in Vermont, um, to talk to my children about her, to talk to my sister, who I'm very close to, about her, to evoke her. I think writing the book was was a way to really go back and um, sort of relive this experience because it had been so intense and so confusing in so many ways. But I think to do that kind of work was also really an, um, a way of integrating her death into my life, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. And that, the other thing I was thinking reading it is how much you had honored her. Uh, one of my other guests, who's also local, uh, Lily Myers Kaplan, wrote a book about her sister and brother-in-law's deaths. And they had always planned to write a book as of course your mother had written a book um they mm-hmm. didn't they didn't get that done and the book she wrote about that experience was was an honoring mm-hmm. of them mm-hmm. and i did have that sense with your mother at the end of the book i felt as if i had met her mm-hmm. you know <laughs> as if i knew her and uh i don't know if that mm-hmm. was something you were hoping to do honor her but i did feel a sense of that um, I think she was somebody who struggled 
to have her voice out in the world. Um, she was she was very sort of um, she had a certain kind of glamour and beauty, but she was quite introverted and shy, and I, it was very hard for her to talk in public. And she rewrote this this autobiographical novel for over 20 years and never published it. And I did feel that in some way, through my finding my own voice and, and, and on the page, I was also uh, giving her a voice, that I was giving her the voice that she she had a hard time expressing in her lifetime. And it's just obviously some fragment of her, because, of course, memoirs are just a fragment of the truth. They're of a fragment course. of reality. Of they're just one, they're one strand. But I, but I, did, I did feel, um, I did write about her book and, and her struggles with her book um, in my book. And I did have a sense of uh, completion and honoring of her when the, when the book actually went out in the world, which was so terrifying and exciting and wonderful all at the same time. There was a piece that I actually uh, put in my notes here that because it moved me so much. It's very similar to how I feel about my mother. You said, I have the exhilarating sensation that I've finally found her, not just the specifics, but the entirety of who she was. And far from being sad that this is happening just as I'm losing her, I feel grateful to have found her at all. That that yeah. just affected me so deeply. I'm, I'm in the midst of reading um, my parents uh, were separated, not not they were still together but they were separated geographically for a couple years right before they got married and they mm-hmm. corresponded every day mm-hmm. and uh i'm now beginning to read those letters there's just something so uh moving about the things you you notice i'm not even sure it's all new things but they ju- you absorb them differently having lost the person yeah, I think there was this amazing feeling of of go of of being aware of my mother as a child and as a young woman and we were also going through letters and journals and dream you know journals and all of this um all of these letters from my father and and from her grandparents and I just had this sense of her as this as as this this vast complex um, being that was way beyond sort of what I had ever known of her as mm-hmm. her daughter, and it was it, it just sort of flooded into me almost, and it was such it was such a a, a, um, a sort of beautiful shining image of her right as she was dying, and um, I'll, I'll never forget that 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 feeling um, about her and the way she was evoked for me during that process, and um, I, I felt I felt it was it was. It was wonderful to to see her. I mean, talk about being seen. I mean, in the sense our conversation comes full circle. Yeah. Um, it really was uh, through being there, um, through her death, and the way that that, I, that that I was, and that we were with each other. I really, um, I thought we saw each other very deeply, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's really what you want, I think, <laughs> in a relationship. With all a, the t- mother, all the certainly. time, and and it's only certain special moments where there seems to be a door open to that um, right. when, when all the rest falls away. Yeah. Uh, and I, I feel that helps me with my orphanhood, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to, mm-hmm. to really have a sense of more of who she was to me than just the, the uh, lively human mess of it all. 
<laughs> and maybe that's because you also realize that your grief is only a, a, um, a partial, it's not that it's a partial grief, but, it, but yes. there's something larger than your grief. There's something so your larger. Grief your what, grief. What a great place to end. <laughs> Thank you so much, Zoe. I hope Thank we'll you, be in touch. Gerald. Next week, I'll be talking with Kylie Hannish and Ivy Margulies. The loss of Kylie and her husband, Sean's son, is the basis for the acclaimed movie Return to Zero. Both of them have been with me on Good Grief before, and they're returning to share their experiences leading a workshop for women who have lost their babies, which just took place in Australia. I'm just really excited to have them both back and to hear about the gathering. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.